Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. As a software developer, you will eventually have a time in your career where you have to work with legacy technology. While working with legacy tech can be a dead end if you let it, there are some things you can do to make the experience beneficial for your career. In this episode, we're going to discuss some things you can get out of legacy technology projects that will help your career move forward even if you aren't using the coolest, newest tech. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? So I've been doing book recordings. Right, so, you know, you record a chapter and I do like a chapter in one shot, right? So it's 25 to 40 pages, which is a little bit brutal. And I've learned some things. For one thing, I've learned... Write shorter chapters? Say what? <laughs> Said write shorter chapters? Yeah, actually, yes. <laughs> um, that is on the list. Holy crap, man. Uh, yeah, I guess crap man is the newest Marvel superhero. <laughs> yeah. Miss old Stan Lee. So, yeah, the, the length of the chapters is part of the problem. The other thing I've learned is that talking by myself and not having interaction in there and having space where somebody else talks and I drink. Yeah is a lot harder to manage than I thought it was going to be. Mm. Yeah, I don't have that problem, but, you know, people know. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, you're kind of the monologue guy, right? And, yes. uh, I mean, it, it's been rough, man. I, I, um, I'll get a good 45 minutes into a recording. It's like, okay, I got 10 minutes left. And I swear, it's, it's like I've been snorting pine pollen. The way my sinuses close up and everything else, it is unbelievable. So, yeah, I've got three chapters left, but... Each of them is over 40 pages long, and then I'm done. How is it? Because when you and I recorded the audiobook that we never published. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we probably ought to which, look at that again. We, we need to make some changes to it because the world is different than it was back then. Yeah. But uh, yeah, when we, when we recorded that, we had an outline. We didn't have like, it wasn't a word for word. And I know like when I've listened to John Sanmez, I love listening to his books after having read the physical copy because he talks about things that he learned since writing it. Not a whole lot. He he mostly sticks to the, the book, but like every now and then he'll be like, all right, let me tell you about this. Yeah. And there's a few other authors who, who do that. So what's it like? Cause I don't know, like we have outlines. We don't have like verbatim scripts. So I did read from the script, but you add to it. I mean, considering what we do, it's hard not to. Like, it takes more discipline to not interject and go, okay, here's really what happened. Because there's a story I tell in the book that I guess the way I put it was a little bit more sanitized for written text versus like, no, here's yo dog. Here's really what happened. So how many times do you say yo dog? I don't think I've said yo dog yet, although I probably ought to. I'll just slip it in and see if he catches it. Sanmez, by the way, is my publisher. I want to know how many times you say yo dog and how many times you say dumpster fire. 
in the book. I'm pretty sure I've used the term dumpster fire. I think I used the term rolling dumpster fire actually at one point. <laughs> <laughs> and I forget what the context was because there's so many. <laughs> Y'all, uh, uh, let me just put it this way. Will uses, like his catchphrase is dumpster fire to the point that Amanda will send the two of us dumpster fire memes when she finds one yep. because it reminds her of Will. <laughs> and, and I'm not really sure that that's exactly the psychological anchor I was going for, <laughs> but you know, it seems to fit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm having fun with it. Um, I will be glad when it's done because then I can work on the podcast website. Although I did have somebody hit me up about a project mm-hmm. that's contract work. I got to look into that because it looks like it might be pretty good. How about you? Any dumpster fires rolling through your neighborhood? <laughs> Actually, yes, but that's mainly because they're doing some construction across the street and it they've got a lot of fires going on over there, burning stuff, brush and things. So, oh, yeah, because you're you're out in the sticks. I was like, but you're not in Nashville anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, um, I am sad about the, the construction. I used to have this beautiful view of a field full of cows and now I have a view of a house. Yeah, it's the way of it, isn't it? Yeah. So I turned in my first assignment for class this week. Saturday, Amanda and I went out to uh, Mill Creek where she works. Uh, She wasn't working, obviously. And we sat at the bar, drank some beer and studied. That was a lot of fun, dude. It's nice, especially when you're doing uh, BNF and uh, grammar diagrams. Yeah, I'm doing theory of programming languages. So, yeah. Honestly, though, I'm really hoping it kind of becomes a thing. I actually turned down a few group invites for Saturday small groups so that we could have time to study together. She's got her teaching stuff that she's working on. Your wife's a teacher, too. So you you understand she like it's more than just in the classroom. It's a lot of prep and stuff. But then Amanda's also taking classes to update her license for teaching high school. So, yeah. We've got a lot, a lot to do on the weekends. And so having those Saturdays where we can just go sit and, you know, we, we just ordered half beers so we could drink a couple of different things and just sit, sip on some beer, maybe order some food and, you know, do homework and study and stuff. It was so peaceful and nice. It was a really just a great day. I guess more interesting than BNF and grammar diagrams. Started teaching myself some simple Christmas songs. On the guitar. I, I know it's like Christmas is several months away, but I want enough time to to practice uh, and just like get really good. Like I, I want several months. You know how I am. I'm like, I don't ever want to like go out and say I can do something until I'm sure I can do it. Yeah. So I want several months to practice and get good at this so that I can play uh, guitar for my family when they come to town for Christmas this year. Nice. So guys, we have two new patrons who have joined the Complete Developer crew. And so we just want to give a huge shout out and thank you to Francis Foster and Christopher Zinn. Welcome. So these guys are are helping us to reach our financial goals. And you guys can take your financial confidence to the next level. Lucas Casares is a fee-only certified financial planner and financial coach serving tech professionals with his company, Level Up Financial Planning. He's located virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. 
Level Up Financial Planning changes the financial planning game by empowering you to live your best life regardless of whether you are just starting up and need to build your financial foundation or mid-career and navigating complex and competing goals. Best of all, Lucas and Level Up Financial Planning is a fiduciary for his clients. What that basically does is it requires him to act in his client's best interest. A lot of times you hear the term financial planner and it's just sort of a a workaround for salesmen. But Lucas is not a salesman. When you're working with him, you pay only as long as you're getting value. And when you're no longer getting value, you no longer pay. You can find more fun resources and learn more at levelupfinancialplanning.com. Most of us want to work on the latest tech. In addition to being more fun in general, newer tech also comes with a lot less baggage, typically more job opportunities as companies are moving toward that technology, and often solves or works at solving emerging problems. However, beggars can't be choosers. Eventually, either due to a surprise job loss, major economic turmoil, or maybe a bad job situation that you just absolutely must leave, you're going to be stuck working with legacy tech in some capacity. It may even be you have an exciting job working in newer tech, and that job needs you to do some stuff with their legacy tech for a while. In technology, The tip of the iceberg is comprised of organizations using the latest and greatest. And beneath that is a substantially larger number of environments that are using something developed between 5 and 50 or even more years ago. At some point in the future, whether it is in the next couple of months or the next 20 years, the economy will crash and burn to some degree. I feel 100% confident that that will happen again. Uh, We always regress to the mean. And when this happens, it takes a lot of jobs with it. It's just simple mathematics. While you might typically avoid older technology, you'll find that there are situations where you have to deal with it simply to get the bills paid. Your approach to this problem will determine your level of success once things recover enough to get a better job. In effect, it's like someone just showed up at your door with a dump truck full of manure. That's a willism that I ended up reading. You either have to deal with a load of crap or you have to figure out the right place to put it so it can become fertilizer. The willingness and ability to do this can often be a career changer. So, Will, what are we talking about in this episode? Like, what's the episode about? Or like, what? Are, how are we going to break it down? You know, if you're stuck in a position where you're dealing with older tech, how to actually make that work for you? Right. In other words, it's not a dump truck full of crap. It's fertilizer for your field. Right. So what can you do to shift your perspective and your approach to the work that you're doing so that you get the most value out of it, even if it's not the new shiny tech? Yeah. So the first thing we're going to talk about is experience with older tech. Yeah. The most obvious benefit to legacy tech projects is the opportunity to learn the legacy tech. Um, (laughs) Now, this may not seem like a lot, but if you can still get a job working with older tech, by definition, that means that people are still using it. And as stacks get older and there are fewer people using them, the price per hour for getting development help often goes up. 
Um, this is especially true of stacks that are more than about 10 or 15 years old. Um, I worked for a company, it's been seven or eight years now, that you know, they, they had this database, I guess you'd call it a database, that was written in Delphi. And it wasn't a relational database. Um, and I could mention what it was, but I'm not going to because I'm pretty sure some of the people listen that work there still. But the thing about it is there were so few people around that knew this database, even though it was common, you know, 10 to 15 years before that, that the guy that they ended up hiring to manage this stuff was getting paid $300 an hour mm-hmm. and was able to work fully from home on his own terms, whatever hours he wanted to work, however many hours he wanted to work a week. Yeah. I would say, I remember when you were working the job with, uh, with Delphi. I was a bit jealous because I did. I learned Turbo Pascal. I like that language. I like it. It grows on you. It really does. It's I. I loved that class in high school. It was it was one of my favorite programming classes I've ever taken. I know. And I read a I read an article of some guy, some cranky guy going, "C sharp developers need to shut up about Delphi." Well, you know what, dude? It's a good language. So Send me that article, I want to read it because that's hilarious. <laughs> he was basically, you know, and it was where they were making negative comparisons to Delphi, yeah. right? Like, and there's things in C sharp that I like, mm-hmm. but like the thing I liked about Delphi was that it, it had the stuff I remembered and liked about VB, especially like when you get a market arrow and you get the design time surface and all that kind of stuff. And it had the stuff I liked about C mm-hmm. in there. And it also had some of the stuff I like about C sharp. Yeah. Because you could do reflection type stuff in there too. It was a little weird, but you could do it. One of the benefits of going back to school is I'm getting to use some older tech because, you know, that's a whole nother episode of, uh, you know, schools use older tech. But um, if I ever had the opportunity to to work in, obviously Delphi, that would be a blast. I would love learning that. But like C++, I was the other class that I took in high school that I absolutely loved. Yeah. And I enjoyed C++ as well. But the thing about it is, if you've got experience with older tech, it can be really useful in jobs that have newer technology, simply because you may have to integrate with it. So like, was this last fall or the fall before? Everything's kind of blurred because of stupid Corona. Yeah, it was last fall. I, I did some work for a company. I had to integrate with a system that would bring back um, like driving records and property records and a whole bunch of other stuff basically as part of a background check. And without getting too much into the weeds, the API that I was to connect to was socket-based. So you open a WebSocket and you push data at it and you go, here's your stream of stuff. You process it and then I listen to this pipe and I get a stream of stuff back and I have to write a parser for that chunk of data coming in. Right. So I have one for you, something I'm working on right now, and that is connecting with a SOAP API. Yeah. Um, and I've been asked, like, I'm, I've been building in .NET Core, which, you know, Microsoft is really pushing REST. And so... For good reason. Yeah. But it's possible. It's just... Whew, yeah, SOAP like, is bitter. Um, <laughs> just... <laughs> Just going to go ahead and say that. <laughs> I, I, you know, like when I had to deal with soap, like it was like you switched from like socket based stuff and like serial port communication and all that 
to trying to do stuff over soap. Well, I mean, you had some RPC type stuff too, but like trying to do stuff over soap, I was more like, you know what? I'll just stay on this older tech. And then it was switched to rest. Like I tried to avoid soap actively for a good decade and I still do. But the thing about this old tech is if you're, you're still going to have to work with it, right? Like, so I wrote .NET Core code that was interacting with a system that's probably older than I am. You know, just the way that the data was in there kind of made me, like it reminded me of like situations where I dealt with like packed bits and stuff like that. So it, it was definitely very, very legacy. And you'll periodically get stuff like this. And if you can do it, and if you can jump in there and, and do a good job of it, you can outcompete other developers who maybe have better skills in Angular or React or something new because a lot of those guys are not going to touch that stuff. Yeah. So the next way to uh, to leverage a situation where you have to work with legacy tech is through the networking. Typically, people working with older tech are older. Also, they tend to be good mentors. Uh, they know a lot of other people in the community and can like, can help you when you're moving on or just to learn the things you want to learn. Yeah, and a lot of people really undervalue people working with older tech and they go, oh, they can't give me any good ideas. But the thing about it is, if you've been at this for very long, you've seen multiple iterations of the same thing. So a lot of times you can bounce ideas off of them when they're not used to the newer way of doing things and they'll ask clarifying questions that really, really help because they don't completely understand it, but they do understand tech. So it's, it's different than talking to somebody with no tech experience. Yeah. The other thing is like the, the way that a lot of older developers will do things tends to be from a position of keeping systems stable rather than from trying to do cutting edge. And so you just get a different category of advice that is extremely valuable. Yeah. A lot of times people who are using legacy tech are good advisors on how to deal with non-tech problems in your career. Part of this is because they've been in the industry for a while. And part of it is because, you know, they working with tech that's not the newest thing they've had to learn to deal with things such as office politics. If they've survived in one position for a while, there's a reason for that. Yeah, there absolutely is. And additionally, you might actually be a mentor to them on some of the newer stuff. This can be really helpful to both of you because a lot of times they do want to learn the new stuff, but they haven't had the opportunity. They haven't had somebody sit down with them. So you can have a really, really good exchange. You know, I have a, I've had a few friends that have worked on mainframe stuff. You know, I had, had lunch with some guys before COVID broke out um, you know, in the before times we were sitting around and we were talking about old technology that we had used and like there were some younger guys at the table too. By younger, I mean like 37, you know, <laughs> like I don't mean like 24 year olds. And, and, you know, we were talking about like the earliest data access technology we'd used and stuff and, and getting into those conversations. And one of the older guys goes, you know, look around at all of us that have done all this stuff. And I realized something I have seen younger faces on the currency in my wallet. <laughs> and he goes and we're all still here this is really you know it's pretty cool but yeah like there's the thing about it is is if you're helping those people you'll learn a lot from that interaction and you'll become a better developer and a lot of times 
the the people that you help, they'll suddenly go, Hey, I really like this new stuff. You know, like once, you know, once all the object oriented stuff clicks, for instance, for somebody that's been doing, you know, old school procedural programming, it's a whole nother world or they understand what they can do with JavaScript, mm-hmm. you know, and some of the, the shenanigans there. And then they're like, it just, it, it opens them up. And a lot of those people will move to their next job and they'll be a director. Yeah. And they'll take you with them potentially. Yeah, I have I have some friends, not so much from my current job, but from some of the uh, the side work and the um, consulting that I had done before I got back into school. Who have moved up into those lead and director positions and have honestly tried to pull me away from my my current job. Um, I won't name names because uh, I don't want to get anybody in trouble. But yeah, I mean that's that's happened and. I'm happy where I'm at and I've, I've got a really good, good setup, but, uh, you know, speaking of where I'm at, one of the things that you will get with this is experience converting to newer tech. The reason I say speaking of where I'm at, that's why I got hired. The apprenticeship I did with Will set me up perfectly for the position they were looking for as when I first got hired back, what, four years ago? Like yeah, I guess it's been that month. long. Yeah. 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 When I first got hired, they were they were looking for someone to help who could understand the older .NET technology and some of the older stuff, but could also build the newer stuff. And so through working with Will, I'd had experience in all sorts of different things and was able to come in and be like, oh yeah, hey, here's here's how you do that in the newer tech, or you know make those transitions and that sort of when I first started, that was my big role was working on a team of people upgrading things like the first couple of years. Really? That's what I did was, all right, we're going to go in and we're going to rebuild this in the newer tech and make it last as long as the old tech did, but with the newer stuff. Yeah. And that experience is really helpful. I mean, you'll get, you get valuable experiences in both technologies that will, you'll be better at both by the time you're done with it. That's very true. And you'll get a lot of other uh, useful non-technical stuff, like learning how to explain things to people that don't understand the other side Mm -hmm. is supremely valuable because you're going to have to do that with users too, or with, you know, your front end developers that don't understand the back end or vice versa. Like that's a, that's a valuable career skill. And this is one of the best ways to get it. It will get harder to find developers for legacy technology over time. And so one other thing you could do is you could actually start converting business systems from an older tech to a newer tech as a business opportunity. You could specialize in that and you can make a ton of money. When Visual Basic 6 went away and all these companies had internal systems and they had, you know, that they'd had running for years and they still had the code, but they didn't have the developer anymore. There was a lot of money to be made in switching that over to .NET or something else. Oh yeah, I I totally see that, and you know I'm I'm gaining a lot of experience now working in like with older and newer systems that I'm looking at you know ten fifteen years down the road going hey when well .NET Core is not going to be a thing .NET five is going to kind of take over and recombine all the .NETs but it's still going to be like there's things that aren't going to be there anymore that have been there for a while in .NET. 
you know, they deprecated a lot of stuff moving to this like cross platform attitude. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm looking at it. I'm going, you know, the experience I'm gaining now, 10 or 15 years from now, I can go out and do that. Like I've, I'm, I've got that in mind, that long-term plan there. So that's, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you on that. That's really cool. Another thing that you will get out of working with older tech is you'll get experience with peripheral tech that is kind of around it, that is slower moving. So for mm-hmm. instance, databases are a perfect example of this, but a lot of the newer technology tends to be built on top of older stuff. A lot of times the underlying older technology changes a lot slower than the stuff that is placed atop it. You know, they put the abstraction layer on there so they can mess with it. That's that's what the whole industry does. Like, that's literally all we do all day. And if you understand the lower layer, a lot of times that knowledge has a much longer shelf life than the stuff that's sitting on top of it. And so, you know, going back to the database example, like your favorite GraphQL library is probably pretty new and probably uses ORM technology at some level under under it that is maybe not as new, you know, more established. That ORM will probably use older APIs, like database APIs, right? Like, so I've used Entity Framework for years, about seven or eight years, I guess. I'm trying to think when it even came out. Um, and before that was linked to SQL. Before that, it was ADO.net, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, and I used that for years before that. Uh, before ADO.net, of course, this was back in the, the VB6 days, you had classic ADO, you had RDO, you had DAO, you had ODBC API. And the ODBC API is under all this crap, and I've used it. Can I just say something? Because I, I just want to interject something here because it, it reminded me of something very frustrating about ORMs. No, they're awful. It's more about people who don't understand them. Yeah. I have seen, and I've had to go in and refactor, where something was built using an ORM and then someone came in behind to do some maintenance and was like, well, I don't understand how this works. I'm not going to take the time to learn it. So I'm going to create a whole nother data access layer in ADO.net and do it that way and make it super confusing. And then like two years later, I have a junior developer going, can you help me with this? Because I don't know what's going on. And I look at it and I go, oh my goodness, let me rewrite this for you. Yeah. Because that's ridiculous. But the thing about it, you know, of course, my personal thing is is most of the time I, I would rather have the ADO.net than the ORM. Just for the problems I've had with EF in the last couple of weeks um, with this latest update, like they've broken a lot of stuff at runtime and we're scrambling to fix stuff that they changed. But the thing is, is I have experience going all the way back to the ODBC API days, right? So like Visual Basic 4, um, and, and so when you understand that, you understand what some of these other things are kind of built on and how they would have to work under the hood. And it really helps. If you're working with older tech, you often get more than a peek inside the way that things used to be done. Uh, the things you learn there can be really valuable whenever you go back to using a newer stack, you know, because that's often what that newer stack is actually built on. Right. So the next thing that you can leverage is improvements of code maintenance skills. You know, nothing shows you how coding practices break down over time, like working with an older code base. <laughs> it doesn't even have to be that old. Uh, you know, but once it's a old lot and it's fossilized. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? 
Oh yeah. boy. Yeah. Okay, what's what's really fun, I mean, just look at your history and you can see how you have grown as a developer over time. And that honestly, we could do a whole episode on that. It's actually kind of an interesting idea. Well, I'll add that to the list. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> A lot of stuff that seems like a really good idea when you start using it, deep inheritance hierarchies, global variables, reuse when it isn't really needed, can cause a ton of pain later. You know, and it doesn't cause pain later within the development of the project. It causes pain like six months to a year later when you got to come back and do some maintenance on it or add a feature to it. Yeah, my favorite is stuff like, you know, the people don't think about like repositories, Mm -hmm. right? Because inevitably, at least in the .NET space, you'll have somebody goes, oh, I love the repository pattern, right? And I'm going to stick that on top of Entity Framework, which first of all, repository over unit of work, not a fan. But they'll they'll do the repository thing everywhere because they're like, oh, I get code reuse, right? Of all these different, you know, I can get an object graph out of this thing when I go, hey, give me object ID number, whatever. And it gets you the whole hydrated object graph. But then you end up at a point a year later where that object graph has changed and grown quite a bit. And every time something got added, it got added to that method that everything uses. And now your system is under load that literally provides no value because most of the system doesn't use most of that object. And that really hurts. Um, I mean, we've been dealing with that some at work. And it it's from the perspective of, oh, a repository is a good idea. and it was a good idea at that point, but at a maintenance level, it's not so helpful. This is why what I like to do is I will put like basic functions in a repository. Right. Like in a base repository. And then I will inherit from that. So then I can pass in like, so like services will take the base repository as long as they don't need something specific from the newer stuff. I apply inheritance to that repository pattern and it, it actually takes care of a lot of the problems that I had initially with doing that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tricky, right? Because there is a certain degree of stuff that is made better by the use of software patterns. There's loads of it. In fact, Mm -hmm. the problem is, is most of the time when you read an article on the web, that's like, Oh, here's the patterns that'll help you with your database access. It's written by somebody that's trying to grow an audience and it's not written by somebody that's got 20 years experience in the field and realizes how these things blow up. Yeah. And so the person that reads it's like, oh, I've got a golden hammer. Everything's a nail. And it turns out that not everything is a nail, but everything is subject to being dented with said hammer. (laughs) Yeah, and it it also, I I think, depends a lot on what you're doing, too. Yeah. I mean, if if your app is very either UI heavy and the, the API is just like, all right, it's just minor data manipulation and talking to the database or very crud centric, then these patterns are are good. So yeah, the thing about it is, is um, a lot of systems that start out very crud centric, um, they don't end up there over time. Yeah. And you, you have to, I think the trick is use the pattern when it's, when it's useful, but don't, and then get rid of it when it's stopped. Right. Like useful. don't, That's the don't, trick. don't feel tied to that pattern. That's, that's a big thing. That's something that I personally have to deal with because I'm like, Ooh, I know this. I like this. I want to use this. And I'm like, oh, wait, I don't need to cram things into this pattern. You use the pattern to make development easier. If it's making development more difficult, stop using that pattern. 
find something else. Yeah, my favorite thing is like a, a small console app that could be done in one file. And they have like three DLLs because they got a business layer and a data access layer and you know, like a lib folder that's like all their utility stuff because that's the proper way to structure an app. It's like, it's a console app, bro. Yeah. What are you doing? It, it, and it, it goes to the, what's the, what's the purpose? Is the purpose with that app to be like, hey, here's something we can train juniors on to learn how to do our things? Or is the purpose for that console app to actually be used and be like, hey, we want to be quick about this. Right. And by the way, inheritance is another one that gets people on this a lot too, right? Like if you have a deep hierarchy and you don't see it as much now because we kind of all got burned by this in the late 90s and early 2000s. But like, for instance, if you're working on MFC, C++, you know, dealing directly with Windows and it has a wrapper over uh, the Windows API, the objects had this crazy deep hierarchy, right? So like if you had you know, like you had a button control button inherited from some like clickable element, something which inherited from something else. And then like 20 levels down, it's, it's like window because it's got a window handle and and has all that stuff going on with it. So anytime they had to change something, they couldn't because any little change that changed the way some piece worked had to filter all the way up through that hierarchy and they had to test it all. So they just didn't change it. And so you'll see this if you're working on legacy tech. The other thing you'll see is lava flow patterns. So like the first guy comes in and is like, hey, I want to use repositories. The second guy comes in and goes, I want to use a builder pattern. The third guy comes in and goes, I want to use event sourcing. Ten years from now, if all three of those things are in the same code base, you understand why people stick to one approach and you know stick their heels in because it really hurts to deal with multiple. So it'll, it'll teach you a lot. Um, I guess is where I'm saying. Another thing you'll really get good at with this is debugging and troubleshooting when there's not a lot of data, poor documentation or like no comments. And what's interesting is you don't even have to have legacy code to have those problems. (laughs) Yeah. The only thing is, is like a newer code. I guess the theory is, is that on average you're around during the the middle of the lifetime of anything you interact with, right? Like if it's been around for 10 years, it'll probably be around for another 10. On average, yeah. Right, whereas if it's been around for six months, it probably will be around for at least another six months. And so as you get those closer timelines, you can kind of push it off on the person that made the problem. Whereas if it's been 10 years, you're not going to find them. I, I've had to be, I've been working in a system. I'm actually rewriting that. That's the the project I'm on right now is we're, building requirements for it, but it was built for a very specific purpose and then had a lot of stuff just like thrown on it. So like, oh, we already have something that kind of does this. Let's just add this to it and add this to it and add this to it. Let's put a skillet on this Swiss army knife. Yeah, basically. And it, it was like, I'm like, it's, it's basically a glorified console app that became a web API. <laughs> I mean, literally is. So like CGI. Yeah. So I'm I'm rewriting it with like all that in mind and in newer stuff with better documentation because it was it was literally written by a junior developer, their first real big project on their own. Like they'd come in and worked under someone for a little bit, their first big project on their own. And it was supposed to only do one specific thing. And more and more stuff got added to it because it was barely above a proof of concept. 
It was like, hey, we need something to do this. The person built it to do that specific thing. And now they're like, oh, well, that's already got those connections. So let's just add a web interface to it and add this to it and add that to it. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So, yeah. You know, she did documentation where possible, but, you know, and a lot of it is code that got like generated and stuff like that. Like going in and troubleshooting that has been a pain. And I have, I've gotten to the point with it because I sort of a, adopted it as I was put in charge of writing the new API. I can look at the error messages sent from it and tell you, oh, you forgot to pass in this piece of data. It doesn't say, hey, you forgot to pass in this piece of data. I just know. I can just read it and go, oh, this is what you forgot to do. Yeah. You get really good at debugging. And like I said, this isn't even legacy. I've worked on some legacy stuff. The reason I can do it with this is because I had worked on some legacy stuff that had even less documentation on it. Yeah, you get a sense for it. Like you get to the point where you're like, okay, this happened. And I know that typically when somebody makes this kind of API call, it's really easy to forget these kinds of things. And you can just look through the code Mm -hmm. and spot them. And yeah, once you've got experience doing this, you'll, you'll be debugging with somebody that doesn't. And they'll watch you and they'll be like, why did you even like, why did you look for that? Why did you know to look there? And it's, it's just like, because I've seen messed up stuff. Oh yeah. That was like, I was helping one of our junior developers. I understand that the guy doesn't like to ask for help. And he'd been on the same bug for like three days. And so I like, (laughs) I, I told him, I'm like, Hey, so what's going on? He explains it to me and I'm like, oh, well, here's your problem. I didn't even look at anything because I had experienced the exact same problem. Like, try this. He tried it and boom, it worked. He was like, how did you even know that, man? I'm like, because I've, you know, I've been doing this a few years longer than you. Not a whole lot, but enough to have seen that problem enough times to go, I bet it's this. And it was. Another thing is you'll learn which practices you don't want to engage in and you'll have enough painful experiences with them that you're going to stop doing them. I've done that and I've learned what uh, people who wrote some of the legacy things that I've worked with, like I have a lead developer who's been around for a very long time. She wrote a lot of the legacy code and when I work with it or when I work with her on newer stuff, I know what her tendencies are based on the legacy stuff that she's written. And I can say, hey, you don't have to do it this way because the newer code, the newer thing solves that problem. You know, that's not an issue anymore with this newer technology. Whereas she had to do that in the older stuff. She had to write things in a certain way to, to solve problems that are already solved. So the next thing that you can do to leverage legacy technology is the experience and training or even leading a team. And, you know, this is this is kind of cool because I am not a lead developer. I am basically the equivalent of a senior developer. We have different terms, but basically senior dev. And this new application, this one that I was talking about earlier that I'm rebuilding, they have assigned to me a senior dev who's been doing this longer than Will to work 
under me. Like we're at the same level, you know, other than he's just been around a lot longer. Uh, actually, I've been at this job longer, but he's been a developer longer. But we work really well together and they're like, you know, he's going to do what you say. I'm like, All right, this is a little weird. <laughs> been there, um, done that. But it's also kind of cool because like, I'm going to all these meetings and really like trying to not make him have to deal with a lot of the planning and I don't know, red tape bureaucracy involved with it. Uh, I'm trying to be an umbrella. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Not yeah. a funnel <laughs> for the stuff that's landing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the thing about it is, is this is really a, a good approach, right? Like if you're working on a team that has really stagnant, technology a lot of times the people on that team are really eager to learn new stuff especially if that stuff can help Mm -hmm. them get their job done faster or easier without certain kinds of headaches and if you can teach them how to do it that kind of puts them in a position of looking up to you which can be really good for your career oh yeah like this this person i'm talking about he's i think i've mentioned him on the show i know i have because amanda's been like hey is that the guy you were talking about and like yeah but he's He's a few years away from retirement and super excited to be learning .NET Core. I mean, like when when I've been in this as long as he has, I want that same level of excitement, you know? Well, you know, the thing about it is, is he may not retire. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, he might just go, you know what? I'm going to keep doing this. And, you know, when people are like that. But Knowing him, um, I think what he's going to end up doing is he'll retire from like the the day-to-day grind and do consulting. Yeah, I had a friend that I worked for. My first uh, development job I got paid for in college, I ran into him in Taco Bell a couple years ago. Actually, maybe just a little bit over a year. Um, and you know, and talked to him. He's like, oh yeah, you still writing code? I go, yeah. And I go, how's retirement working? He goes, uh, it didn't take. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, how long were you retired? He goes, four months. <laughs> he goes, that's all I could stand. I'm like, all right, well, but yeah, I mean, there's, you, you'll run into that, that sometimes too, you'll get like groups of less experienced developers when you start working with older tech. And if you come in and you know, the newer stuff, a lot of times you can, you know, start learning how to lead a team because you can go, Hey, we can move things this way and get us uh, into a better position to upgrade this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it it's really helpful. I've done this before too, where I've gotten promoted because management looked around and saw that I was basically acting like a team lead anyway. Yeah. And they're just like, all right, well, it's official. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I feel like I'm being groomed for that. I wouldn't be surprised because, you know, I they they like keeping people around, especially the ones who get things done. And I've seen some of my friends get promoted up into lead developer positions and stuff like that. I can see this going that direction. I'm purposely not looking to get promoted because I really want to spend time at that sort of senior level like, and get those experiences so that when I do move up into a lead position, I can be a better mentor. So speaking of that, another thing that you can leverage is opportunities to move forward Or laterally. Oftentimes, development shops that are stuck in old tech have a really bad issue with turnover as well because they'll be bringing in more developers and those developers are like, oh, this is a dead end. Let me get out of here. Mm -hmm. Um, And it can be because of an unpleasant work environment, but sometimes it can just be due to the technology 
being used. Now, if it's just a problem with the technology and there is high turnover, it's going to be easier to get a promotion under these circumstances. Another thing I have seen, I've seen this happen to friends of mine who got promoted probably a little bit faster than they needed to. Like they will say that they got promoted into the right role for them um, because they really stepped up to it. But was where there was a change in technology where they were going from, hey, we've been using the same technology for the last 15 years or so. And we really need to move forward because it's things are changing and we need to change with the times. And people leave because of that. There's a lot of turnover around that. And I've seen where people who can come in, work in the old tech and work like what we talked about earlier with the move, like that transition to the newer tech, you come in at a lower role. Maybe you come in as a mid-level developer and that's, that's where you are in your career. You're mid-level. You come in working with older tech, moving into newer stuff. Well, hey, in a few months, the senior developer who doesn't want to learn the new tech and realizes, hey, I can make a lot of money going out and working in this older tech now leaves. You suddenly got a senior role open and they know you're good at it, you know? Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, is even in a bad environment, this can work for you if you can avoid being a target. Mm -hmm. Right. So like everybody's seen Star Wars for every officer that Darth Vader choked to death on his ship. Several others got promotions. Right. Like you choke an admiral out. Suddenly a captain becomes an admiral. Sometimes, you know, the first mate becomes a captain. Yeah. Right. So if you can avoid being the target, it will work. (laughs) It's just the trick is, is can you do it? Um, If you can reach such a position and stay there for a little while, you can often jump ship to a better salary and better working environment with a a much better title than you would have gotten otherwise. I'm not necessarily recommending doing that, but it is an option. It's a risky option, but it's, it's something that you can do. And if you leverage the other things that we've talked about earlier in this episode, it can be a really beneficial option, even if it doesn't work out to do that. Yeah, especially if you're set up to be tolerant of risk. Yeah, this can also be a good time for a lateral move. A lot of these companies are more desperate for help and don't know they need help in certain areas or don't need someone to be full-time in a certain role. And so this can be an opportunity to partially move into an adjacent position. Yeah, we have a friend who was started off as a software developer, got into it and was like, hey, I really want to be a project manager. And she did a few different roles and then started like got into a position like this where she could do some project management and, you know, was able to make that transition into what she wanted to do. Of course, I've also seen it where like I have worked with a junior developer and she got into development because she wanted to do project management. They offered her a BA position that was going to be like a huge pay cut. And she's like, yeah, no thanks. Left. And then like a year later is running her own development department. Yeah. So, you know, it depends on what you want to do. Another thing you can get out of legacy technology is you can learn a business sector. Older technology companies can often have a wealth of on-site knowledge about certain business sectors. It can be really lucrative to remain in those sectors after you leave that job. Now, this is especially true if you start consulting. You know, while you can certainly learn a lot 
of useful info about a particular line of business uh, working in newer tech, you know, it's going to be kind of shallow, especially if the company is new in the market, or even if they're making a transition into that newer tech, if they've been around for a while, they're not going to have their deeper, more important systems in newer tech, generally speaking. Well, and the main fight then too is, is the newer tech, not how do we make the system work for the customers, right? Because the tech is a lot to deal with. You know, the thing is, is if they've been around a long time, that deep knowledge of the market is there somewhere. Yeah. Because that's how they stay around. And so if you can figure out where that is and learn from it, you can leverage that in your future career if you want to stay in that industry. Mm -hmm. Now, I've personally jumped around a lot. I have opportunities in stuff that I worked in in the past because I understood the deeper level. Now, I will say this. I know a lot of people who may have jumped companies, but stayed within the same industry. Yeah, I know a bunch of people that have done that, especially in medical-related stuff here in Nashville. I mean, that's what I originally planned on doing, remember? Because like when we first started this podcast, my goal was to leverage my medical knowledge and go, hey, I already speak the lingo, you know, and I won't have to learn a second set of acronyms and stuff because I already know the medical stuff, which is kind of funny. Uh, the other night, Amanda and I were out uh, with some friends and their friends came in. We get to talking and I'm like, she's a doctor. And sure enough, like Amanda said something about her insurance and like the conversation got brought up about, you know, needing a new primary care physician and stuff from the conversation. I was like, I know she's a DO. I could just tell. So I just threw it out. I'm like, yeah, I only see DOs. (laughs) And that led us into the, oh, where'd you go to school? Oh, you know, the, the whole, you know, talking about osteopathy and stuff like that. And it was, it led into a really fun conversation, which is why I, I kind of did it that way, but it was, it was interesting. But like having that industry knowledge, like we made friends with this couple. Yeah. Cause you could do that in an interview. Yeah, you could. I had a job, you know, the job before last, uh, when I went into my interview, you know, I aced the interview and then I talked to the CEO of the company. It turns out he was nerding out on cellular biology stuff, which I remembered stuff from class. And so like, it was like five minutes of tech talk and like an hour and a half of that stuff. Well, you remember the interview and that helped me get the, the job. interview I had. I, I went in, we geeked out about tech for a little bit. And then we talked podcasting because, yep. you know, my first boss was looking to become a podcaster and he's like, yeah, you have a podcast. He asked me a tons of questions about podcasting, not related to the job at all. But like we geeked out about tech, we geeked out about podcasting, we geeked out about tech some more. I'm standing up to leave and I'm like, this wasn't even an interview. I'm like, what? Yeah. Then he asked me to do a whiteboard question. I'm like, there's the interview. (laughs) Yeah. I knew it was in here somewhere. But the thing is, is you already had it. Oh yeah. At that point. Unless you just totally screwed that up. And that's what you really want for a long-term tech career. Um, the other thing too, this if you get the business knowledge, you can have a lot of options in other parts of the industry, including non-coding parts potentially or in adjacent industries. So it's very helpful for moving around. It's also really handy for not moving around. So if you are getting close to retirement, if you get that deep business knowledge, like let's say you're 10 years away from retiring, right? Like you don't really want to switch jobs at 60 yeah, because it's harder to get hired and they're like, oh, you're a short timer. Even if you're not, like there's that, that kind of stuff goes on. 
And so if you can get the deep knowledge and stay there where you're valuable, it can make it where it's, it's a little bit easier to not have to worry about the job change stuff right before retiring. It's a lot easier on a lot of people. So the next thing you can do to leverage legacy tech is to regroup and work on your own stuff on the side. So yeah, if you get a job that's with legacy tech, a lot of times it's more stable. A lot of times the work-life balance thing is better. Not always. It can be easier a lot of times than jobs that are using the bleeding edge tech where you have to go look stuff up because nobody knows anything. Um, if you're trying to build your own thing on the side, this is the kind of job you want. You don't want to be doing you know stuff at the bleeding edge all day. Yeah. Companies that maintain legacy software will also change your view on what is actually required to build a stable side project. You know, rather than just thinking about it in terms of technology, consider paying more attention to the non-technical stuff the company is doing. You can learn a lot about processes, tools, and those sorts of things from other people who have already been successful. Yeah, I mean, sometimes a company that has you maintaining legacy systems can be a perfect candidate as your first customer for a side concern. Uh, You have to approach this with caution and pay attention, but a lot of times they have problems that you can solve and you can write software on the side to solve it and then go, hey, I'm building this thing on the side. Would you like to be my first customer? If you've got a big, you know, good relationship, it can work. So the final thing we're going to talk about is to deal with complex non-work situations from stability. Sometimes your personal life is about to get messy. And honestly, you're better off getting a more stable, less demanding job to deal with it. Whether it's health issues and impending marriage or divorce, uh, children about to be born or just recently being born. Honestly, I have a friend I haven't seen him in a few months because his wife had a baby during COVID. And I saw him for the first time last night and he's looking for a new job because he doesn't want her to have to go back to work. He wants to let her stay home with the baby at least for the first few years of the child's life. And so he's looking for a job that pays more and is going to be like solid. Yeah, you could just simply have a desire to rebuild your finances and a job with legacy tech is going to be solid and it's going to give you those opportunities. Yeah. I mean, life is not just about programming frameworks. Sometimes other things are more important and those things intrude. Sometimes you want a job that just doesn't have a heavy training and learning requirement while you navigate other issues. Like I've known people who had spouses with substance abuse problems. And you talk about something that's awful is having a, a day job that is, you know, 60 plus hours a week of really hard work and having to try to figure stuff out and then going home to that. Yeah. That's not something somebody wants. So they'll go and they'll get something that's easier to deal with just because they can't handle both things right now. Be careful about becoming too complacent, though. Uh, you need to keep your skills and network up to date or the job can become a trap. Yeah. So unlike the other cases, this one is one where it's really easy to go, okay, I just have the job and the job is, you know, walled in here and I'm going to deal with the rest of my life. Well, once you've dealt with the other stuff in your life, you're probably going to want to try to do something different on the job instead of just sitting there. Yeah. I mean, just when you get this job, picture Admiral Akbar. It's a trap. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we really hit the uh, Star Wars. We did. um, Also, sometimes your career will be better off if you ease up a bit. 
handle your major life situations so they don't become pathological. You don't want them to bring your career to a halt. So take a step back from your career, handle that, and then get back into to your career. Will's done this a couple of times within his career. I've done this where I've switched between careers or things like that a few times. Yeah, I mean, the the times I've done it is mainly been to avoid burnout. It's Sometimes that's what you got to do and you got to go, hey, I'm going to be in this other job for a little while so that you know, things can cool off. So guys, you can effectively leverage working on a legacy system provided that you know what you want to get out of it more than a paycheck. A lot of developers tend to look down on work positions that use legacy technologies. But this is excellent because if you're any good, you can often have your pick of the jobs. And better yet, if you pick the right jobs, you can quickly build up non-technical skills and expertise that will help you compete with people whose technical resumes are more current. We want to give a thank you and a shout out to Lucas from Level Up Financial Planning for sponsoring this week's episodes. Uh, Through his sponsorship, Lucas is helping us achieve our podcasting goals, just like he'll help you achieve your financial goals. And Beach, what do you have for us for Tricks of the Trade? So Amanda uses a particular software, I'm not going to mention the name, for distance teaching her students. I'm sure any of you who uh, are in the U.S. and are uh, have kids in school or know some teachers have heard of this technology. Right before the school started, they updated their software like a week before school started with massive breaking changes to their user interface. So this really made me think about us as developers because I have I've talked to parents and parents, friends of mine with kids and Amanda and other teachers I know. As developers, what we think is intuitive, maybe even like what our QA team are familiar with in the application might not be as intuitive to the average user as we think. This is especially true for those users who are not comfortable nor confident with technology. Avoid making massive changes to an interface right before kind of a massive upswing in use. One thing I thought about when writing this out was tax software before April. You don't want to make major changes to the tax software right before tax season. Same thing for school software right before the school year starts in August. I will say this is something that Facebook does right. When they change their user interface, they actually slowly roll it out, giving people the option to try new inter- you know, like the new interface and then switch back if needed until they eventually say, all right, you're going to have to move to the new one. You know, It's not always possible. So when you're making these big changes to legacy systems, schedule them to be the least intrusive to your users. That's pretty much all I've got. We'll catch you guys next week. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. 
Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to completedevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.